We come now to the preaching of God's Word. As a result, I'd like to welcome you to join me in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, if you are unfamiliar with the Bible, then you'll find the book of Matthew at the very beginning of what is called the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4, as you work to find your place here with me, I'd like to remind you that we're currently working our way through an Advent series called Light and Life to All He Brings. Over the next few weeks, we're going to continue our focus on the powerful and unique ministry of Jesus Christ, the one who came down to us on that very first Christmas. Like last week's passage in Luke, Matthew 4 ties Jesus to the prophecies of Isaiah. As we look on Jesus during this Advent season, we're going to see that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that God has promised. We need to see Jesus as He is, as real and significant and meaningful and necessary. We need to see Jesus as the Savior of sinners. Listen now as we read from God's Word, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Will you pray with me once more? Heavenly Father, we recognize together that we need you. Lord, we pray that during this time that you would speak to every heart, to every mind. Lord, we expect you to speak because you have promised to do so by your word and spirit. Lord, we pray that your word would be received in our hearts such that we might be changed and transformed for your glory. Lord, we pray all this now in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we look at Matthew chapter 4 together, I'd actually like to begin by asking you two big questions. What do you really fear? And what do you really need? No matter who you are, no matter where you are, I want to challenge you to really consider these two questions this morning. As a child, or as a student, as an adult, as a retiree, in this Advent season, in every single season of life, what do you really fear and what do you really need? If you're a note taker, you might want to write those questions down somewhere near the top of your paper. 
If not, I would still like you to keep these two questions in front of you as we make our way through chapter 4. What do you really fear? And what do you really need? In reality, we're going to spend a good amount of time talking about our fears and our needs today, but do not lose hope. Because we're also going to focus our attention on the one who actually understands all of our fears and all of our needs. We're going to look at the one who moves toward our fears and our needs. We're going to look at the one who actually calms our fears and meets our needs. Our outline this morning is actually quite simple, but but I think it can be helpful as we make our way through Matthew 4. Along the way, we'll cover three points. The darkness the light, and the decree. First, let's look at the darkness. At the beginning of verse 12, we learn that John the Baptist, the controversial prophet and the cousin of Jesus, he's been arrested, most likely in the the southern reaches or region of Israel. As a result of John's arrest, Jesus does what? He withdraws into the far northern reaches of Galilee. After an initial stay in his home village of Nazareth, Jesus makes his way to Capernaum. It's a port town on the northeastern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Near the end of verse 13, Matthew specifically tells us and his readers that Capernaum is located in the territory given to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali following the conquest of Canaan. At this point, you may be a little confused Let's be honest, you might even be a little bit bored. I mean, why does Matthew spend several verses talking about geography and ancient history? It isn't because he's trying to impress us with his knowledge. Matthew shares these details and makes these connections because they are essential to our understanding of Jesus' person and work. By, By moving... To Capernaum, Jesus Christ fulfills the messianic promise given to Isaiah the prophet. I want you to look at verses 13 and 14 with me again. And leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What follows in verses 15 and 16 is actually a direct quotation of Isaiah chapter 9. I know this might be a little redundant or or a little unnecessary, but as I reread this prophecy again, I want you to listen this time specifically for references to the darkness. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. You heard it there, right? The people dwelling in darkness. Those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death. That's a bleak picture. Isaiah sees here a mixed multitude of people residing in the places of darkness and death. 
As we reflect on Isaiah's description of this powerful, permeating darkness, the reference to the Gentiles here perhaps makes sense. Historically, the Gentiles, they were pagan peoples who were alienated from the covenant promises of God. But why are the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali lumped into this prophecy? Because they are just as lost and desperate as the Gentiles, if not more so. Remember, the nation of Israel, they rejected the will and the word of God for hundreds of years. The biblical record, it's filled with descriptions of greed and excess, pride, laziness, and rampant idolatry, which, by the way, typically took the form of cult prostitution and child sacrifice. God graciously and repeatedly called his people to repentance. But they refused to turn back to him. And they arrogantly welcomed the consequences of their own sin. Situated at the northernmost point of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali were actually the first tribes to experience the unspeakable horrors of the Assyrian invasion. The Assyrians treated others with an unsparing kind of cruelty, and a young Isaiah watched all of it happen in real time. Deportation, death, and darkness. Seneca the Younger was a renowned Roman philosopher and politician. He was also a contemporary of Jesus Christ and the Apostles. He once said the following about humanity. We have turned everything into a state of darkness. We see neither what injures nor what profits us. All our lives through we blunder along, neither stopping nor treading more carefully on this account. But you see what madness it is to rush ahead in the dark? Indeed, we are bent on getting ourselves called back from a greater distance. And though we do not know our goal, yet we hasten with wild speed in the direction whither we are straining. Seneca was certainly no Christian. He actually served as a tutor and counselor to the emperor Nero. Many of us know how that turned out. But Seneca's description of our fallen humanity is is shockingly, shockingly biblical. We have turned everything we are and every single thing that we know into darkness by our sin. Our hearts are dark. Our minds are dark. Our world is dark. As a result, we perpetrate darkness on others, and we are victimized by darkness from others. And no matter how hard we work, no matter how fast we run in that darkness, we cannot get rid of it, and we cannot get out of it. Isaiah's prophecy repeated for us here in Matthew chapter 4, is, it's really a call to honesty. You see, before we go any further, Before we look at anything else, we have to admit that we are just like the Jews and the Gentiles in this passage of Scripture. We are lost, sinful people living in a lost, sinful, dark world. 
I think, though, we, we have to be practical. It's well and good to look at generalities, but, but what about the specifics of my life and yours? Where do you see the darkness in you and around you today? How is the darkness shaping your thoughts and your desires? How is the darkness of sin influencing your relationships? How is it coloring your internet searches and your social media posts? How is the darkness actually leading you to use and abuse other people? How is darkness pressing in on you through the sins of others? Where do you see the darkness gripping your physical body or the physical bodies of those that you love the most? Our first task this morning, really, it's embracing the darkness. We need to accept the darkness of sin in us and around us, and we need to accept that it's there all the time. We are not okay. We are not fine. We are certainly not good in and of ourselves. We live every single day, every moment of every single day, where? In the shadow of death. We are, every one of us, lost in the dark. The darkness described for us here in Matthew 4, it's thick. It's, it's heavy. It's actually debilitating. It's a, it's a crippling, disorienting kind of darkness. We're, we're supposed to feel the despair. We're actually supposed to wear the desperation, but I have some good news. There is something greater than the darkness. Look back at verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. There it is. Isaiah sees more than darkness. He sees the light, and it is a great light. It's a light that breaks over the horizon. A light that breaks into our lives with warmth and hope and life. But it gets better. Because Matthew tells us that the light, it's not just an object or an idea or a feeling that comes to us when we smell cinnamon and taste peppermint mochas. The light is a person. Go back to that geography and that history lesson at the beginning of the passage. It's Jesus who moves into Capernaum. It's Jesus the living, breathing Son of God, born of a virgin, who moves toward the people dwelling in darkness. Jesus Christ is the great dawning light. But we're not done yet. (laughs) Jesus actually moves toward who? According to Isaiah? The Jews and the Gentiles. Verse 15, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and the way of the sea and beyond the Jordan and Galilee 
of the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, rest assured, Jesus is moving toward those from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. All, all of the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Since we're in the Advent season, I, I think it's worth noting that Matthew isn't the only one who sees this connection between Jesus and Isaiah's prophecy. I want you to turn with me quickly to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Here at the beginning, or excuse me, at the end of this chapter, Luke records a prophecy by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah knows that his son will prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. In verses 76 and 77, it's a long chapter, Zechariah, he explicitly mentions the ministry of John. But, but then there's this subtle, majestic shift towards someone else in the middle of verse 78. Look at it with me. Whereby... The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Simeon sees the same thing when he holds the baby Jesus in the temple grounds. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. It's the same prophecy. It's the same message. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the light of the world. Just before sunrise on July 16, 1945, Brigadier General Thomas F. Farrell watched the world's first nuclear weapon explode over the dark deserts of New Mexico. When describing the blast, Farrell said the following, The lighting effects beggared description. The whole country was lighted by a searing light with the intensity many times that of the midday sun. It was golden, purple, violet, gray, and blue. It lighted every peak, crevasse, and the ridge of the nearby mountain range with a clarity and beauty that cannot be described but must be seen to be imagined. General Farrell describes a breathtaking scene. On that morning in 1945, the light removed every shadow from every place. The light overcame the darkness if only for a fleeting moment. As we look into Isaiah's prophecy, we see an even greater light. We see Jesus Christ, and we should be awed by the indescribable, lasting beauty and power and scope of His person and His work. Hear me well. The darkness of sin is real. It's in us, and it's around us. It consumes us, and it can even define us. But Jesus Christ is 
greater than our darkness. He is greater than our disobedience. He is greater than our disappointments. He is greater than our desperation. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This morning, you might be convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that your soul or your situation is just too far gone. You may think the darkness is too thick, it's too heavy, it's too permanent. You've lived in the shadow of death for too long. If that is you this morning, by God's grace, look up. Look to the horizon and behold the Lord Jesus Christ. No person, no circumstance is beyond His light. Nothing is beyond His omnipotent reach, His magnificent grace, and His transforming power. And know this, Jesus, <laughs> He isn't inconvenienced or intimidated by our darkness. He's actually attracted to it. Remember, Jesus loves finding the lost. Jesus actually delights in giving sight to the blind. Jesus loves entering our darkness and our brokenness and our despair with His light. Thus far here in Matthew 4, we've looked at the reality of our darkness and the splendor of Jesus' light. We are the people dwelling in darkness, and Jesus, He is the great light of the world. Our final point this morning is the decree. I want you to look at verse 17 with me again. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here in Capernaum, near the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus begins to preach a strong and clear message. It actually takes the form of a, of a direct command or an edict. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is the Messiah's good word for a hurting, lost, rebellious, and confused people. This is the Savior's announcement to the Jews and to the Gentiles dwelling in darkness and the shadow of death. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As we work to understand Jesus' decree here in Matthew 4.17, I'd actually like to handle the two parts of this decree in reverse order. So first, let's make sure we understand what Jesus is saying when he references the kingdom of heaven. If you read through the Gospels, you'll begin to notice that the kingdom of heaven is a loaded phrase that Jesus uses regularly and intentionally. The kingdom of heaven is deeply messianic and wonderfully redemptive. According to one commentator, the kingdom is the realization of Israel's hope. It's the fulfillment of the covenant promises made to the fathers. The new and final order at the end of history has arrived at last with Jesus. The kingdom of heaven then is the final chapter in our human story. And here in verse 17, Jesus says that the kingdom is at 
hand. So this is it. It's the beginning of the end. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of blessing and life and salvation has been established by Jesus, the Messiah. That same kingdom is being extended by Jesus. And one day, one glorious, glorious day, that kingdom will be sealed, finished, consummated by Jesus Christ. As we continue to consider our darkness and the light, and now the kingdom of heaven, we need to think very seriously about our present and our future. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says that those outside of his kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. The Apostle John describes a very different future for those who belong to the kingdom in Revelation 22. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see the connections and the contrasts here, right? The citizens of the kingdom of heaven will know the saving light of Jesus Christ for all eternity. Those estranged from the kingdom will live forever in the undying, unrelenting outer darkness. Ultimately, there is no light, no salvation, and no hope for those outside of Christ. That's why Jesus begins his proclamation in Matthew chapter 4 with one simple word. Repent. First and foremost, the call to repentance is a call to a brutal, unrelenting honesty. We talked about this earlier. But again, we, we need to recognize where we are and who we are. We must acknowledge by God's grace that we are helpless, hopeless people living in the dark. But second, the call to repentance is a call to turning. Through the work of God's Spirit, we turn away from our sin, away from ourselves, away from the darkness toward the saving light of Jesus Christ. A few years ago, one of you actually introduced me to a documentary about addiction and codependency. If I'm being honest with you, that film is actually really hard to watch because it follows the stories of five real families. It's raw. It's devastating. But it's also beautifully redemptive. You might expect that a documentary like that would would begin with some personal interest story or perhaps a litany of statistics. But instead, this particular documentary begins with people of all ages walking through a maze. The participants, they're, they're involved in a kind of guided exercise. 
They're blindfolded, placed into a maze, and then told that they must find their own way out. While they're looking for an exit, we overhear different men and women say things like this. I I really don't know what to do. I'm stuck. I feel like I'm going the right way, but I just can't get out. I've tried everything that I know to try. While the maze goers desperately search for freedom, the facilitator of the exercise calmly repeats time and time again, there is a way out. There is a way out. There is a way out, I promise. There's a pivotal moment near the end of that documentary, some hour and a half later, where we revisit that scene. The leader finally and graciously approaches one of the frustrated participants and asks a series of questions. Are you finding a way out? No. Are you powerless? Yes. Can you do it then? No. What's the next thing you should try? Asking for help? Will you help me? The leader smiles and calmly says, sure. He takes the blindfolded participant by the hand and leads her all the way to freedom. That's biblical repentance. It's an honesty and a turning that's actually initiated and empowered by someone else for our benefit. This morning, we desperately need Jesus Christ. We need His light, and we need the promised blessings of His eternal kingdom. We need Him to work a continual repentance into our hearts. So let me just ask you point blank. In your life this morning, in this moment, can you say that your mind and heart, that even your actions are characterized by repentance? Do you have a growing knowledge of the darkness in and around you? Are you transparent about your sin before God and before other people? Do you see your real everlasting need of Jesus? Are, are, are you actively and continually turning toward Him as your only hope of light and life? If so, then rejoice. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. If not, then know that I'm praying for the Holy Spirit of God to illuminate your heart and your mind today. Let each of us hear once again in sobriety and joy the gracious decree of our Lord Jesus. Repent. 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This morning we've considered the darkness, the light, and the decree in Matthew chapter 4. You may remember, though, that I actually started today by asking you two big questions. What do you really fear? And what do you really need? I think this passage actually answers both questions for us. At the end of the day, we actually fear the light of Jesus Christ because it exposes us. It's a fear as old and deep as the Garden of Eden itself. The light shows us who we are in our brokenness, in our sin, in our darkness. The light actually confirms That we are lost, desperate, angry, arrogant, lustful, greedy, rebellious people. But here's the beautiful and sweet irony. We need the light of Jesus Christ more than anything else in this life. Ultimately, Jesus is our only hope of salvation. His finished work gives us a place in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our holiness. Jesus is our great light in the darkness. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have given us Jesus. Thank You that You have looked upon a people such as us. A people dwelling in great darkness. At our worst, we enjoy the darkness. At our best, we are blind and groping for some way out, only never to find it. God, help us by Your Spirit this morning to see Jesus as the light. To know that the light of His presence, the light of His saving work, reaches into every nook and cranny of our lives. Help us to know that His light will not be stopped, diminished, or dimmed. Help us to yearn for the kingdom and the fullness of that light to come. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.